Well, good morning. All right, come on. Good morning. All right, very good. You guys are a little bit better than the nine o'clock. They were asleep. And so let me tell you what we're going to do over the next few minutes together. Last week, we started a series called The Crown Jewel, and we're walking through the book of Ephesians. It has six chapters, and so we're going to take seven weeks in a row and cover most of the book and then take a break for Easter and then come back and finish the last two in May. And so last week, we kind of did a foundational work of, of why the book was written and uh, who it was written to and some of the basic key elements of it. And so in just a minute, I'm going to go back and kind of give us that introduction so that you understand and know why and where the book was written and who it was written to and the purpose. But then after about a couple of minutes after that introduction, I'm going to do something that I don't want you to feel uncomfortable about, but I want to go ahead and make you aware of. Um, I'm going to give us an opportunity to pray because I think what uh, God has to say today in his word and, and really every day in his word and every passage, but specifically today is going to help some of you wake up from your sleep and your slumber of just going through life as it normally is. Because we fall into the habit and the trap of just showing up to church because it's Sunday or because we're supposed to, or we check off a box because that's what everybody expects us to do. And so I think today has the power to literally wake us up from our sleep because I think a lot of us as Christians, and if you're not a Christian here yet, then that this is something that maybe you can awaken to the idea too as well, that we go through our lives sleepwalking through what God has done for us. It just becomes routine and it becomes habit. And maybe if you're not a believer yet, that may be partly wise because you see other people who claim to follow Jesus, yet their lives are really no much more different or better than yours. But it's supposed to be and it really is. We just don't sometimes display that. And so I think what God has to say today will give us this awakening because every now and then we fall into that rut and we need somebody to come and shake us and wake us up, you know, kind of like your teenager when it's 12 o'clock on Saturday and it's like everybody's been awake for six hours already, right? Somebody needs to shake us and wake us up and get us awakened to the fact of who we are in God and what he has done and what he's called us to do. And so I'm going to ask us in, in that moment just to pray and ask God to open our hearts and our minds to what he has to say today specifically. Now, you can do that in your seat. You can do it sitting down, standing up. You can go out in the lobby if it makes you more comfortable. Some of you may want to come to the front, what we call the altar or the front of the platform. And we don't do that because you're more special or you want to show off in front of other people. Sometimes people come to the front just to put themselves in a posture to say, God, I'm kneeling before you. I want to hear what you have to say to me. And if you're here before and you've never prayed and you don't know what to pray, I would recommend the best thing you do is simply tell God that. God, I'm, I'm here. I don't know what to say. I'm just going to listen to you. Which honestly, for somebody that's been a believer for 50 years or 100 years, that's probably the best way to approach prayer anyway. A lot of times we like to tell God what we think and what we think he should do. And instead of just sitting before him and say, God, you show me, you teach me, I'm listening, I'm available, and I'm here. And so if you don't know what to pray, just say, God, please, I'm, I'm here for you to talk to me. And so in, in a few moments, we're going to have a chance to do that together. So let me kind of lay the groundwork. And the, the reason we call this uh, book Ephesians, uh, the crown jewel, is because that's what it is. It's just this beautiful piece of, of writing and literature and, and scripture uh, written by the Holy Spirit, which is God to us, to people, to mankind, to teach us who he is and who we are. And it's just this beautiful uh, letter. It's really not a book. We call it a book, but it was a letter the man Paul wrote to a group of people and a group of believers in the area of Asia Minor and to this church in Ephesus, which is why it's called Ephesians, that it was written to the church in Ephesus. They were known as the Ephesians. And so he writes this to them so that they would understand and know who God is. Now we have to know a little bit about 
this city. And this city in that day was kind of the crown jewel of all the cities of all of Asia Minor. It was filled with commerce and trade. It was a place of possibility and hope. If you didn't live in the city, you wanted to be around the city or at least travel to the city and have good relationships so that you could have commerce and business happen within that city because of the trade routes and just because of the influence that was within that place. And in that city, there were two structures that really defined Ephesus as this beautiful city in Asia Minor. One was the outdoor amphitheater. It was kind of like a a large coliseum like we have as a stadium today. And it was sitting out in this picturesque view, looking out over the port and out over the sea, that people would gather into for celebrations or entertainment or events. The other one was just north of the city and probably is more important for us and, and what we're looking at today. It was called the Temple of Artemis. It was known as one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. That's how grand this temple was. And to understand the scope and size of it, it was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. So this was a beautiful, majestic type of structure. And the people there in Ephesus and around Asia Minor would go to the temple daily, weekly, or make a yearly journey. And they would come and they would worship the god Artemis, or the goddess of Artemis. And so they would come in, they would lay artifacts at her feet, hoping she would give them favor, hoping she would do something in return. Now... This goddess was the goddess of fertility, so who wouldn't want more of that in their life, right? So some people went more often than others. But they would go back, and they would lay things at her feet, and they would go into the temple and pray. And it was such a big structure. It had such influence. It became a bank and a sanctuary, a place of refuge, and it served a lot of different purposes. And so imagine in this city, these people are worshiping this god, this idol. And it's really no different than where we are today. We have created for ourselves idols and things that we go to and that we lay things at their feet. We, we lay at our, at our feet, we lay the things of our 401k, we lay things at the feet of our relationships, we lay things at the feet of, of our houses and our jobs and our careers, hoping they would give us something in return. So this is really not much different than what we as, as humanity still struggle with today. And so here comes Paul into the city teaching a very different message. You don't have to give something to a God to get something in return. You don't have to lay something at their feet for them to find favor with you and and find blessing in them. He comes teaching this message of God, who instead of us having to go to him, came to us and sent his son, Jesus Christ, so that he could pour out blessing on us and we didn't have to do anything to earn it or deserve it. And this hit the people hard after a couple of years because Paul's in the city for three years teaching this message. And after a while, some of the people had gotten tired of him saying these things because it was It was a threat to their livelihood because all these craftsmen were making these idols and figurines that people were buying to lay at the feet of the goddess of Artemis. And deeper than than threatening their livelihood, it was threatening their identity. Because if Artemis was false and Artemis wasn't real and Jesus was, then everything they'd ever known and everything they'd ever done was gone. Everything I'd ever worked for, everything I'd put my hope and my trust in, Every time I'd laid an idol at her feet, every time I prayed to her and begged for her to change my life, every, every dollar, every coin I dropped in front of her was gone, it was worthless, and it was nothing. And so there's a, there arose this tension between the city and between Paul and what he was teaching. And, and all of the city got involved, and they rushed into the amphitheater, and Paul wanted to run in with them so that he could debate them about Christ versus Artemis. But some of the city leaders grabbed him and pulled him away. Because they knew if Paul entered into that amphitheater, it would be the last day he ever saw on earth. And so they pulled him away, but two of his companions were taken inside. And for the next two hours, the people of Ephesus cried out over and over and over, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They were basically like our two-year-olds sticking their fingers in their ears and saying, La, 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 I can't hear you. 
over and over and over again and say, we're tired of hearing about this Jesus. We don't want to know anything more about him. We like life the way it is. Just leave us alone. And so here's the backdrop in which Paul writes this letter. There are people who are worshiping idols and worshiping other gods. And again, not much different than what we have today. It just takes on a different form and it's called by a different name. And so Paul, in the first 14 verses of his letter, first writings of his letter, he lays out for the people who God is and what he has done, specifically in Jesus Christ, that we were in bondage and in slavery because of our sin and because of our choice. And we were kidnapped in our sin, but Jesus Christ came and paid the ransom to remove us from captivity. And in doing so, God gave us his Holy Spirit as a deposit, a guarantee that we would know that our salvation was true and real and nobody could take it away from us. Now, verses 3 through 14 are one sentence in the original language because Paul just could not quit writing. He was so excited about what God has done in Christ. And the next few verses, verses 15 through 23, are the same thing. He's going to write in one long sentence all that we have and all that we should know and all that we've received in Christ and how we should live accordingly. And so because sometimes we sleep through life and because we sleep through church and sometimes you sleep through my messages, I I get it. You know, the lights are low, the chairs are semi-comfortable and you haven't had a nap since last week. So some of you take a 45 minute nap every week and I get it. But today I don't want you to. Mentally, spiritually, physically, emotionally. Today I want you to try to stay as woke as we say today, as woke as possible. Okay. So I'm going to give us an opportunity just to sit and ask God, Speak to me. Open my eyes, my heart, to things maybe I've never seen or I have seen and I've just fallen asleep to recently. And again, if you want to sit there and pray, more than happy to do so. The posture you take really doesn't matter. It's just your heart and desire to connect with God. Some people like to come to the front. Some people feel uncomfortable. Perfectly fine. But in the next few minutes, just in silence, I want you to begin praying. And I'm going to pray for us that God would prepare us what he has to say to us today. Because I believe it literally can change your life. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the stillness of this moment and maybe the first stillness we've experienced in a week. But God, we come into a place like this not to to play church, not to show up because it's once a week or because it's what we're supposed to do, even though some of us that's what we're guilty of. But God, today we come to be awakened. We come to realize that we've been made fully alive that we're not intended to sleepwalk through life, we're not intended to sleepwalk through our life in you, through our Christianity, through what we believe that we have turned into a religion but was not made to be something of so much structure that it chokes out the life that we know in Christ. 
And so God, today we, we ask for a moment that you would, you would open our eyes, you would open our ears and our hearts mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally, that today would be a type of reckoning for some of us, that we would come face to face with what we know to be true, we just have forgotten. And maybe for some, for the very first time, they've been chasing other things and other idols that we thought or they thought would provide hope and peace and happiness that simply have left them empty. Would maybe today, for the very first time, become awake to who you are and the reality of who Jesus is and what he wants for them. And God, for those who've been walking with you, God, shame on us for sleepwalking for so long. For slumbering and taking it easy and thinking my, my salvation and my home in heaven is assured. And I can just walk through the rest of this life carefree and not worry about anything else. And God, for, that, for some of us who believe the lie that we could never be good enough for you, that while we know we can't and we needed Christ, that in Christ we are enough. That we've lived defeated, we've lived hopeless and powerless and helpless. That today we would be reminded, God, of the power we have in Christ that's not ours but has been given to us, that has been transmitted to us and placed in us because of your power and will and love to do so. God, I pray that Christians today would be victorious and powerful, not in the prosperity of the things of the world, but in prosperity and knowledge and wisdom and understanding of you. That we would live so victoriously, that we would live so powerfully, that people would know, like the early disciples, that we have been walking with you. God, wake us up this morning. That your church was not intended to sleep or slumber. That the men and women you have saved and rescued and are still saving and rescuing were not intended to stay with our eyes hidden and remain indoors. That we are supposed to live our faith out loud, even in the difficulty and the painful moments, overcoming those because of the power of your Spirit in our lives. So God, wake us up this morning. Show us who you are and who we are in light of you. God, we ask that in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So Paul's going to say a couple of things to these believers early on in these first couple of verses. And then he's going to say, I'm going to pray for you for something. And I want you to receive something. And I'm going to give you two things that I want you to receive this in. And then he wants to tell them what he wants them to know and understand. So verses 15 and 16, we pick back up. This is where Paul says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And so Paul says, I, I know that you have been living for God. I praise you since I have left you in those times that I've been in the city teaching. I've heard of your faith. I know of your, your understanding of me and how you've lived that out and how you've loved other people. However, at some point in their history, and we saw last week in the book of Revelation, the very last book in which John, an apostle, one of the followers of Jesus, writes back to this church of Ephesus after they have spent some time. So Paul says, you are loving God and you are loving people the way I intended you and the way Jesus intended you to. But after about 10 years or 20 years or 30 years, this church started to walk away and fall asleep of their initial calling. 
They started to fall asleep to what God had desired for them. They had that moment of salvation where they received Jesus and they understood the freedom they had. That Christ had bought them their freedom from captivity. And then all of a sudden they just went back to living life as normal. And they fell asleep like many of us do. We had that moment of salvation maybe as a child or maybe at a youth camp or maybe as an adult. Where we for the very first time understood what Jesus has done and then 20 years later... We're just sleepwalking through life as if nothing ever changed. And John in Revelation writes back to this church. He says, I, you understand the word of God. You went to Sunday school. You went to Awanas. You know the Bible verses. You know how to look up in your Bible and find out where everything is. You got the sticker for perfect attendance. You got all that. But I have one thing against you. And really this is God saying this against the people. You lost your first love. You fell asleep. You acted as if what I'd done for you really never even mattered in your life and had no transformation and no change in you and your life is no different than when you first received or believed in me. And so at some point in their life, this church believed in the power of Jesus and loved him enough to give their lives for him. Every day of their life, they were giving and trusting in him so much so that it had a natural outpouring that they would love other people, they would love their fellow believers in a way that people knew and people saw. Because they lived differently than the rest of the society around them. Because the rest of the society couldn't give anything away. You know why they couldn't give anything away? Because they had to keep it for themselves to give it to the goddess of Artemis so that she would make them happy and please them. Which is the way most of us live today. We hold on to our stuff, our possessions, our life and our time. Because i got to keep this for me because then I can give it to God and I hope God will be pleased with me. But Paul says, no, you understand who you are in God, that he's given you freedom, that you could never pay him back because you could never pay him in the first place. But how you live your life displaying this evidence of love for me is by giving your life away to love other people, which is what Jesus said was the primary evidence that you're my disciple in John 13. He says, by this, all people will know. They will understand that you're my disciples, John 13, 35, that if you love one another, if you have love for each other, this is how people know. You don't have to say a word. You don't have to put it on a bumper sticker. Sometimes, please don't. Right? You don't have to put it on a coffee mug or a pillow. You don't have to hang a cross in your house. Sometimes we have more artifacts that speak of our love for Jesus than our actions do. Right? And so John says, this is what I have against you. At one point, you loved Jesus and you loved other people. Because Paul's writing about it just days, months, years after being with you. He knows and experienced this love you had, but at some point you forgot. You just fell asleep. You just quit living for Jesus. And you quit loving other people. And so Paul says, back in Ephesians chapter 1, he says, this is what my prayer is for you. I'm praying for you. You're always in my mind. And I'm praying that you would understand a few things today. And he continues in the next verse, verse 17. This is his prayer. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation of the knowledge of him, having eyes of your hearts woke, awake, enlightened, that you would see differently. And Paul's prayer for this group of people is that you wouldn't see with human eyes anymore because we're finite. We can only see a limited amount of things in time and space and even see the layers of things that are hidden that we cannot know in the hearts of man or that's working in the mind of God. And Paul says, my prayer for you is that you would be awakened to these things, that you wouldn't live life like everybody else or the way you used to, that Jesus has done something in you that literally changes you to the point that you can't see anymore the way you used to see. 
Which Paul says in a later passage, he says, we don't see with, with physical eyes anymore. We see with spiritual eyes. And so he's praying that they would see differently, that they wouldn't see with their own eyes. And he prays that they would see differently in two different ways. First of all, he prays that they would see differently and their eyes and their hearts would be enlightened, one, through the Spirit, the Spirit that gives wisdom. That they would not see with their own finite understanding, their own intellect and their own knowledge, but the Spirit of God that is placed in, him, in us, the guarantee and the deposit that we have, not just assurance of our ticket to heaven, but how we live and know God in the moment. That he would be pouring in this wisdom to us of knowing how to live our lives. And the second way our, he prays that their hearts and their eyes would be enlightened, that they would be awakened to who God is, is second through the word of God. So Paul is praying that we would see things differently. Because when we try to see in our own mind, and our own power, we cannot see. We're simply limited, but seeing with the wisdom of God is so vastly different. And some of us, chase philosophical realms and some of us chase self-help leadership books and I'm not against self-leadership it's important to be able to understand who we are and how to lead ourselves and lead other people and all of that is important but some of us put all of the weight of our growth and life on learning one more thing if I can just get that one more thing if I can just learn how people look at me or how I should look at other people and people view me and if I can just get this and make myself different and build myself up then I'll be somebody God will accept me and other people will think I have influence and status all of us are guilty with that. I'm about to make some of you mad, okay? And I apologize, but I don't apologize. <laughs> this is what I want you to see because Paul doesn't want us to see with human wisdom and knowledge because this is what human reasoning and philosophy says. This is know yourself. The problem is if we know ourselves with our own finite, limited understanding then we truly don't know. We just know what we think we know, which we already knew, which we just want to find other things to confirm what we already know, which really just doesn't get us anywhere. So human reasoning and philosophy says, know yourself, girl, wash your face. The gospel says, know your God. Girl, read your Bible. Human understanding says, well, I can just learn more. I can just gain more understanding. I'll just research all these things, and I'll just have this philosophical idea of myself and other people, and that's just going to put me in a different status and a different place because I know me. Well, there's two problems with knowing me. I either think more highly of myself than I ought, or I think more lowly of myself than I really should because I don't see with true wisdom. And the only way we can see that is through the Spirit of God and through knowing who God is and what he has to say about us. It's the only way we can know who we really are. And so Paul goes on this passage, this kind of litany of, of how the Spirit of God gives us wisdom in another letter to the Corinthian people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I want to read it to you. It's a, a couple of verses that stay with me in what he has to say about the Spirit and the wisdom the Spirit gives us. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. So Paul right away says this isn't about human philosophy and knowledge and understanding because it's limited and it's going to be gone. It's only here for a time and it will be gone because it will change because men will think differently and learn other things. And what we think we knew and what we stood on will not be what we stand on in 50 years because it's always changing with the wind. But we impart 
a secret and hidden wisdom of God. What we cannot see with our own mind and our own eyes, no matter how much philosophy we study, no matter how much we know ourselves, there are just secret things that are in the spiritual realm because God is higher than us and we are finite and he is infinite and we cannot understand apart from him which God decreed before the ages for our glory. This has been since the beginning of time. But the problem is, none of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart has imagined of the man of God, what God has prepared for those who love him. And these things God has revealed to us, not by human cunning and wisdom and understanding and knowledge, but God has made known to us who God is and who we are in light of him, not through what we can learn outside of him, but through the spirit which placed, he has placed inside of us, which searches the depths of us and the depths of God himself. For who knows, he says, for who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person? Nobody else can know except you because it's inside of you. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God, which he has given to us. And we have received now not the spirit of the world, not the spirit of intellect and human knowledge and understanding. As great as it might be and as much as we think it has expanded over time. But we have received the Spirit who is from God that we might understand, that we might know the things freely given to us. By God. And the only way you can know yourself is by knowing God. And the only way you can make sense of your world is by knowing God. And the only way you can know God really is by knowing His Word and walking in the Spirit that He has placed inside of you because of what Christ has done on our behalf. And so, Paul's prayer is, I want you to know, I want you to think differently, I want you to see differently, I want your eyes to be enlightened and you not to live in the secular, physical realm. But I want you to see the things that are hidden that I have made known and evident to you by the Spirit of God and in Christ and through my word. And so he says, these two ways I want your hearts to be enlightened, through the Spirit and through the word. But... These are the things that they can reveal to you that you cannot understand apart from my spirit and apart from knowing my word. So he's going to give us two verses and three things. This is not a three-point sermon, but these are three things that you need to know as a believer. And if you're not a believer yet, to understand what we have in God. Because we, it's not just showing up to church. And if it's just showing up to church, find something better to do with your time. Like, for real. This is not just showing up and saying, okay, we got a program for an hour and 15 minutes. we got to make sure it happens every week. This is, this is not a play. This is not a theater. This is not a movie. This is something that we live within, that God shows us, reveals to us, teaches us, and we gather together to praise him for it and to learn from one another how to live in him better. And so Paul gives us three things of what we have received in Christ in verses 18 and 19. He says, this is my prayer that you would receive through the Spirit and through the Word, that you may know these three things. One, what is the hope to which you have been called? Two, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And three, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? So those who believe and trust in him, these are the things that he has given us. He wants us to know, one, our future hope. He wants us to understand and know that hope we have. And two, he wants us to understand God's inheritance, which is really cool. I'll show you in just a moment. And three, the power we have in Christ. 
The first thing he wants us to know, that we can only know through the wisdom of the Spirit and through the Word of God, is we have this future hope, which is an assurance in Christ. And the reason that's important, especially to the people he's writing to, and really to us today, is because they didn't have assurance. They didn't have hope. Because guess what they had to do at the temple every day, every week, every year? They had to go back and lay things at Artemis' feet so that they could be found favor. They could have blessings so that she would keep them in the family. She would keep them in their mind. And they had to come back over and over and over again because they were worried if they didn't, she might forget about them. And the gods of their day and the gods of ancient times were always moving their will and their thoughts with the wind. You could never know or never please them because it always changed. And the same is true for us. You made an idol of your marriage. First year was great, it's honeymoon. But the last five years, what have you been doing? Just about everybody, every morning, waking up. What can I do to please him so he won't leave me? What can I do to satisfy him so he won't find somebody else? What's the thing that I can make or give him or show him or show her? so that she won't take off when things get hard. We continually lay things at the feet of the idols we worship because we feel like we don't. They'll leave because we don't have assurance and hope because we placed our hope in the wrong things. And Paul says, you place your hope in Christ and no matter how you have behaved last week will change his love or your assurance of hope in him ever. It is secure, it is solid in the bedrock of the foundation of the world and it cannot change. So quit living as if you missed your quiet time or cussed somebody out or did something wrong that you can't overcome and you feel like I have to come back and please God so he'll receive me back in the family. You couldn't do it the first time, you can't do it again. You're his. It doesn't mean you shouldn't change. You should absolutely change through the power of the Spirit and understanding the word of God more. But some of us live fearful that we don't have any hope that we're going to lose that relationship with God and you can't lose it because you never could do anything to earn it to begin with. And so then to solidify that fact, Paul says this, the second thing he wants us to know, this unbelievable inheritance. Now in verse 14, Paul talks about the inheritance we receive because of being in Christ and here it seems to be as if Paul is talking about God's inheritance he receives in us. That we are his reward. Not because of who we are, but because of what Christ has done for us. And most of us live thinking, I'm not a reward to God. I'm a burden. He just simply took pity on me. But if you look back in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy... This is what it says about the people of God. But the Lord's portion is his people. The Lord's reward is his people. The Lord's inheritance are the people that Christ has saved and made into his family and into his body. That changes everything. That we don't see ourselves with human philosophy and understanding. Because when we do, we see our mistakes. But when we see the way God sees us, it changes everything for us. That God sees us as his reward. When's the last time you thought you were a reward to God? Not because you earned it, but because of what Christ has done for you. 
that God views you in this way, that he loves you and cherishes you, that he is looking forward to celebrating with us when that end time comes. And we think all I've ever been is a mistake. All I've ever done is messed up. I can never be as good as them. I can never overcome this struggle. I could never live past this moment. I always keep messing up, and surely God just wants to say, fine, be done with you. But Paul says we are his inheritance. Do you, do you get that this morning? Like he treasures us in relationship with him. He doesn't need us, but he treasures that. Parents, you know this. You don't, you don't need your kids. You lived a, a 20, 30 years without them. <laughs> Happily. <laughs> but you couldn't imagine life without them. And you treasure that moment. They don't define you, but they're a part of you. They're your family. They're your flesh and blood, which is exactly what God did for us in Christ who took on flesh and poured out his blood so that we could be part of him. Today, Christian, you are God's reward. That should change the way you walk out of this room. And the third thing Paul prays for and that he wants us to see is that we have this immeasurable power in Christ that is always present. It's always there. The problem is we try to live life in our own power. God, thanks for salvation. Now I'm going to do this by myself. I'm going to get myself out of the situation. And we wonder why we live without any power. And we wonder why we're not victorious over certain situations. And I'm not talking name it, claim it. And I'm not talking prosperity. I'm just saying how we're not victorious over the things of life. And we wonder why it's because we're trying to live in our own power. And Paul's prayer in these three things for us is not that we would take possession of them, but we would realize we already possess them in Christ. We already have them. They're ours. We don't have to go seek them and go find them. He's already put them in us. We already have these things. We already have this relationship with God. He already considers us a reward. We already have the power of Christ in us, but most of us cannot overcome a spiritual battle because we tried in our own strength and power. And Paul says, you already possess it, it's yours. There's this uh, story of a man named William Hurst who lived about 100 years ago or so, and some of you probably are familiar with him. Some that are my age and younger are not. Um, he was a wealthy businessman who lived in San Francisco, and um, he was a politician as well, and I think served in the House of Representatives two terms, almost became mayor of New York, and almost became president of the United States. He won, I think, 40% of the vote that year that he failed. But he was also a newspaper publisher, and he was in competition with Robert Pulitzer in New York. And so on both coasts, there was this battle between these two men. And Hearst was one of these men who just desired everything and didn't handle things well and was kind of a tyrant a little bit. And he wanted to gather things for himself. And so he had this art collection that rivaled every other art collection known to man. And it said that he was such an art fanatic that at one time he owned 25% of the world's art collection. I don't know how that's possible, but that's what reports say, whether we believe it or not or whether it's true. We just know he was a, a fanatic about art and trying to get it and obtain it and have it. So one day he hears about this piece that's extremely valuable. And so he has to have this because he's had to have others in his, in his collection as well. And so he hires this agent, a person who goes out looking for art. And this agent says, okay, I'm going to spend some time looking for this. And he, he explains to him what the piece of art looks like and how much it's worth and how valuable it is. And so the agent takes off on this investigative trip. And he searches high and low and he looks at all the places, talks to all the art vendors and all the galleries and all the museums and all the places you search for art. 
And after a couple of months of searching, the agent found the piece of art. And so he comes back to William Hurst and he says, I have good news. That valuable piece you were wanting to add to your collection, that you were wanting to have, I found it. And there's even better news. It's already in your warehouse. You just never opened it up. And I get the sense here that Paul is helping us find the treasure we have been looking for and we've had it in our possession the whole time. We just never opened it up. We just left it closed and crated. He said, I'll do it on my own. I'll take care of it in my own strength and my own power. Paul says, you already have the most valuable thing you could ever add to your collection and nothing else you gain could matter as much. He says, believer, you already possess the power of Christ to overcome everything in the world. You'll still struggle because you're living in this world in the body of flesh, but you have power to overcome because of who Christ is and who the Spirit already is in you. And it's which he he goes on to say, it's not in your power, not in your strength, but God has done it in Christ as he continues in verse 19. He says he's done this according to the work of his great might, not of our power, but through Christ, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all other things, far above all authority, all power, all dominion, and every name that is named. He put him over all of these things, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. He gave it to his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all, which Paul is saying, everything that exists on the earth, God has the power. Jesus has the power and the strength and the might and the authority and dominion. He throws every power word into that section as he possibly can for us to understand there is nothing that can overcome Christ. And for those who are in Christ, there's nothing that can overcome us. Because in the spirit, we have the power of Christ in us. And everything is under the feet of Jesus. And God has planned this from the beginning of time. And you say, that's great that Jesus has it. Paul ends that section by talking about the fact that God has done this in Christ, but has given it to the church in full, which he calls the body. Which means Jesus has joined to you so intimately, if you believe in him, he's joined to you so intimately that he is the head and you are his body. You are a part of him. And the way that is phrased brings back to mind at the very beginning when God pulled Eve out of Adam that the two, the one became two and became one flesh and they were so intimately entwined that God calls the church his bride because we are one. And what good husband doesn't want to give his wife everything she needs to be successful and for life and for godliness? Believer, you are treasured by God. You are loved by him. You are not a burden. You are his reward. You have a hope in Christ that cannot be shaken or changed. And therefore, you should live in power because Jesus has done everything you need to overcome everything that you will ever face. And as his body and as his bride, we are called to walk through life representing that relationship we have. Problem is, some of us have sleptwalked through that relationship. And we have communicated to our friends and to our community and to our family a relationship with God really isn't that big of a deal. 
when it literally should change our life and cause other people to want the same type of relationship with this God that so freely receives and gives salvation to anyone who would believe. And we've been given the power to represent him in this way. So quit sleeping through life. Quit sleeping through your walk. Quit saying, well, I can't overcome this. I'll just give into it. Quit saying, I don't have the power to change anything. He gave the church the power to bind things on the earth, to literally make change happen. And so we don't just show up to church to do church. If we did, I'll go find another job, and you can go find another thing to do with your hour and 15 minutes. Because it ain't worth it if we're not bringing change into our world because of the power and the way God sees us. I don't want us to be a church that just shows up on Sunday. I don't want us to just do it because it's time. I want this to be a place where people's lives are changed. And so that your friends will know there's something real about this God they serve. I want to know more about him. So while we pray, while we sing, maybe some of you need to say, I I need to quit sleepwalking. And maybe some for the very first time, I've never been awakened to who God is. This is the first time. We'd love for you to come and gather on the front or pray at the altar or come talk to one of us on the front. This message, not mine, but the, the words of God have the power to change everything. And you can't view yourself in a right, accurate way. You can only view yourself through the lens and the eyes of God, which changes everything for us. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your word would go out and that would bring change and hope into our lives that for some who've been a Christian for a lifetime, 20, 30, 40 years, And all we have done is just continue to show up and turn a relationship into a religion. That you would awaken our hearts and our minds today. For the person who walked in or has been walking in for weeks and says, I'm not sure about this God, that maybe for the first time, God, you open their hearts and their eyes and their minds to who you are and how you view them and what you want to do in their life as well. But God, I, I believe wholeheartedly that as the church... It starts with us, that we have to display this relationship, this type of power, this type of reward, this type of blessing and love that you have for your people. We have to display this not in arrogance or pride, but God, in humility that this God of the universe chose to love us, and he's given us power to overcome life and difficult obstacles, to live in ways nobody understands but that brings blessing and hope to a community and to a city. God, it starts with us. I pray that you would awaken some of us this morning. I pray in the power and the name and the ability of Christ. Amen.